Own Your Creativity, Episode 59. One of the results of that was I decided that if I had a choice, whenever I had a choice, I would only choose to do things that fed my soul. I'm Elizabeth Johnston, and I'm here to help you unlock your creative potential so that you think, feel, and do better in life and at work. Welcome to the Own Your Creativity podcast. This is the place where it all starts, where you begin taking your place in the world, where you say, enough is enough. It's time for me because you know that the more you reclaim and express your creativity, the more you can live the life you were meant to. That's my mission, to provide you with a place to get inspired to own your creativity. The more you listen to the show, the more you'll see how possible it is to own your creativity. And then when you do that and you stand up for your creativity, you join me in leading by example to make a difference in the world. If you believe in the power of creativity, I invite you to show that support in a tangible way today by becoming a patron of the Own Your Creativity podcast. To find out more about how you can join the creativity movement, go to bit.ly forward slash creativity patron. That's bit.ly forward slash creativity patron. There you will find a whole host of affordable options plus lots of rewards helping to spread the word about how important creativity is so that we think, feel, and do better in life and at work starts just at $1. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm really excited because I'm going to be talking to Sheila Horrell today. She is a drumming facilitator and has been drumming for the last 30 years, ever since being introduced to the primal magic of the drum, by master percussionist Yubaka Hill. After studying percussion with various drummers here and internationally, she has been facilitating workshops and drum circles for many groups in southwestern Ontario, including schools, universities, camps, nursing homes, conferences, and agencies. The experience of introducing new drummers to the ease and joy of music making with the drum has been a prime motivator for Sheila's continued success. There is nothing like witnessing someone relaxing into their own rhythm and having fun contributing to the music of the whole drumming community. As well as facilitating drumming, Sheila is also a member of percussion groups in London, including the London Groove Collective, a group which weaves melody, sax, and keyboard with various percussion instruments to create everything from jazz fusion to ambient soundscapes. As well, she sings and plays with Women's Spirit Song Choir and Joyful Noise Choir. Sheila is a proud volunteer at My Sister's Place, where weekly drumming on a Monday morning gets the week off to a fine start and also volunteers with the Grand Theatre, the Women's Circle at Brescia and Heartlinks, a small London NGO which walks in solidarity with a community of women and children in the desert regions of northern Peru. Welcome to the show, Sheila. Hi, thank you, Elizabeth. Good to be here. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into drumming? Uh, we know that it's been the last 30 years, but um, were you always that, or did you do something else? And how did that all come about for you? Oh, my drumming story, my coming into drumming story is hilarious. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I went to um, the Michigan Women's Music Festival, and I could only afford to go there for one day. And I had kind of taken a weekend off away from my children. I had uh, my children, my family. 
I have six children, and at that point I had four children. And I was very busy, and I really needed to just take a weekend away. So I just told my husband I was heading out, and if he didn't hear from me, everything was fine. If there was a problem, he'd be the first person to know, but don't expect to hear from me where I'm going to be going. So I just went off, uh, drove all night, got there in time to kind of get in for the last day of the weekend. And um, after I woke up, after downpours all night, I went to um, over, over a hill. As I was coming over the hill, I heard drumming, and it was huge drumming, probably 50 or 60 women. And it turned out that it was the first time Obaka Hill had had her drumming workshop women perform on the day stage at, uh, at the Michigan Women's Music Festival. And I just, it was like I got hit in the belly with the sound of the drums and the, the primal energy of it. I just kind of was stunned and walked over and sat down. And a friend of mine, who was actually one of the women who was running the, the drum camp this year, um, uh, Judith Comartin, had been making small drums and she gave me a small drum there. Because oh my I was, goodness. I had no idea what I was going to be doing with this <laughs> kind of moment. Uh, but I knew I had to do drumming and it was just kind of like, oh my God, what am I doing? And then it was kind of like being pregnant after that. You know, when you're pregnant, everybody you see is pregnant. You, you, <laughs> all you see the drums place. everywhere. There was there were more drumming things happening in our community and I had I had no idea that this was even around me until I got the bug. And then I just went to everything I could find that had anything to do with drumming, any group. And after a while, I ended up being the one who had been, who had stuck with it longer than anybody else. And people started asking me to facilitate. So I, I started doing that and kind of muddling my way through that and then studied and, and took some, uh, some courses in facilitation, so I felt a little more comfortable doing that. But yeah, so, <laughs> so I have ties to this drum camp in in uh, in funny, funny ways. Well, it's it's uh, so funny the way that we don't see what's around us until that there's some kind of catalyst or opening that you know oh, opens our right. eyes. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just it, and it's all about focus and and what you're paying attention to, I guess. Yeah. So you were you were an elementary school teacher when you mm-hmm. went to the Mis- Michigan um, Music Festival and yes. started on your drum journey. How did you balance um, being a, a teacher plus uh, having a family of four and then six children? Um, how did you balance all of that with your drumming? Well, um, I just took the time whenever I could to drum. I, about that time in my life, had had a bit of a, um, an episode with depression, and I was coming out of that as I went to this music festival. But um, one of the results of that was I decided that if I had a choice, whenever I had a choice, I would only choose to do things that fed my soul. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, that kind of became my touchstone for whatever it was I chose to do. So that meant 
But there were a lot of things that I let go of that gave me some time to do drumming. Drumming definitely fed my soul. Music fed my soul. The singing did. Um, and then I found out that there are a whole lot of things that feed your soul. Mm. You could, I, I ended up, if you asked any of my friends um, who is the busiest person they know, it'll be me. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm always doing things that meet that criteria. But in the doing of it, I end up engaging with the most fascinating people and finding new things that are really, really interesting to me. So what's your definition of creativity? Well, well, over, over the time as I've come to um, explore that a little bit more, my personal experience of creativity is getting my ego out of the way. Mm. Just getting my brain out of the way, getting into my body responses to things. So that's why I like drumming so much. It's, it's very much a get your brain out of the way thing for me. And just um, have fun with the rhythms, have fun with the way my body is responding to it. So I... I know that there are a lot of people who kind of see creativity as something that you develop and plan and work at. I guess the work I do is getting everything else out of the way mm. so I can just have fun with it. Right. I don't have a lot. I, I spent a lot of my life, probably the first 40 years of my life, trying to prove that I knew what I was doing even though I felt like I was faking it for whatever it was. And then I got to the point where I felt that I didn't have to prove myself anymore, not even to myself. And at that point, then I, my work became getting myself out of my own way. Okay. So I could just have fun in my life. So you mentioned earlier that you had a period of depression and that it was when you were starting to come out of that that you went to the music festival. Yeah. Did, did you find at that point, um, and maybe parallel with your depression, that, that you were missing some creativity in your life? I'm sure I was missing creativity in my life. I don't even think I had considered that there was a possibility of creativity in my life. Why not? I, I had spent a lot of time doing what I felt I was expected to do. Mm. Um, I was a teacher. I was a wife and a mother. And I was uh, very occupied with, with doing the best I could in all of those areas. Um, being a teacher has moments of creativity. But basically, you're tied to curriculum development and uh, the, the rules and regs of the institution that you're involved with. Mm -hmm. So um, actually, after this bout with depression, when I went back to the teaching, I went back to teaching kindergarten and junior kindergarten. And then my creativity really, really kicked in and... Part of that was finding ways to translate what the children were doing and learning 
into language that the institution would allow me to continue to let them do what they were doing. Oh, right. <laughs> so it was kind, of, so kind of a subversive kind of creativity in that point. <laughs> but by then, I was also learning that I didn't need to prove myself to anybody. Right. I would do what I felt was uh, what needed to be done and, um, and kind of delight in the way children were learning. Can you give an example of of your sub- subversive self there, you know, um, trying to explain to the powers to be that this this was good and right for the kids to be doing? Can you give an example? Oh, I had a wonderful example of that, or, or example in a couple of uh, teachers who were part of the primary uh, program in the board I was with. They actually took a look at all of the... Um, stages of development of children, developmental stages, through the eyes of a painter and a sculptor and um, working with uh, small bits of manipulatives and things like that. And they actually were able to label the stages of reading readiness that all of those different activities exemplified. So I was able to then to take the language of reading readiness and back it up and say that, for example, a child who was at the blob stage in painting, that sounds very, very um, uh, non-academic. It sounds really liberating, though. (laughs) It does. It does. The blob stage is a legitimate stage of development in painting. And it is the point at which a, a child is discovering the difference between what is and what is not. So they are, they are discovering limits oh, okay. that they have not had before. So you see where the blob is, mm-hmm. you see where it is not, you see where you want to put another one. Those kinds of things are happening. Hmm. Then the blob ends up getting a little more detail and uh, getting arms and legs and fingers and toes and all those kinds of things, which are very uh, interesting additions to that and also indicate uh, better attention to detail or uh, more focus on um, people Mm. and facial expressions, expressions of emotional stuff that are all reading readiness stages that before the child even gets to decoding letters and sounds, they already have this sense of story and who's involved and how the story works itself out on a painting. Okay. Yeah. And so you you were able to show that it it was valuable to bring in uh, paint, uh, like paintings and, sculptures and that sort of thing that that was like a a viable way and and so and this was challenging to them uh challenging to the students yeah no to the to the administrators yeah um they needed convincing i was very fortunate i was (laughs) very fortunate in the in that the board that i was working with um valued children's play okay but it was necessary um to be able to document and describe what was happening in terms that showed that the children were 
in their play, preparing themselves for academic right, right. structures. Okay. So mathematical stuff and uh, um, and reading readiness, basically. All right. So, yeah. So very fun stuff, anyway. That, yeah. <laughs> took so, a lot of creativity sometimes to work that around. Well, I have a little boy who. Um, it's a funny one, who. Uh, who worked on a farm. He worked on a farm. He was four years old. He didn't work. But his brothers and father worked on the farm. And they had um, they had rules on their farm that some of the language that was spoken in the barn did not come into the house. Okay. He hadn't got, he hadn't got that message yet. <laughs> so he heard his brothers and his father using language that was inappropriate. And uh, he would come to school and, and just blurt out all of this stuff. And we were having a little bit of discussion with him about what was appropriate or not. So I called to his mother and I said, I'm not quite sure how you want me to report this on his report card. I don't want to say that, that your child is using profanity excessively or anything like that. So we worked it out that we would say he was, he was exploring a creative, creative expressions <laughs> of the language. Yes. <laughs> So there's always ways you can rationalize and make it work, make it sound okay. <laughs> well, you know, they say that we often teach what we need to learn. And it sounds like you, when you went to back uh, to teaching and were teaching elementary, that, that you were kind of teaching yourself how to be creative. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was a lot of me allowing the process of growth to happen. Mm-hmm. in the children. And for me, that also was happening. I was allowing myself to relax and allow the interactions and the communications of that little classroom community to help me grow as well. I don't think I realized it at the time, but now when I look back on it, I use a lot of those techniques I can't even call them techniques. It's not that conscious. I use a lot of that learning in what I do now. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you were struck by the drumming, was that the moment in your life when you realized, okay, I, I'm, I'm done with not having creativity in my life. I'm done with being depressed. I, I need a change and this is going to be my vehicle. Was it, was it that moment in... Uh, for you or was there a different moment when you realized that it may have been but Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it at the time Mm -hmm. it was just I was just stunned yeah by what was going on and I realized I needed to do more drumming in my life um over the course of the next probably uh five or six years I then started really exploring this what feeds my soul business Mm -hmm. and I think that probably um, helped me to find creativity I did a lot of work with with dance and uh, and singing voice vocal creativity and for a while I was just trying to do it the right way. You can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes in the right way. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, 
because that was the way I had learned how to learn. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any different way to do it. I think most of the aha moments that came, and there were a few of them, came when I just let myself go and all of a sudden stuff would start coming out of my hands. Stuff would start coming out of my voice that I hadn't planned, that I didn't expect. But it was delightful and it was really fulfilling. It was deeply moving to me and it was exciting. And I think that's, I think I didn't define it as creativity at that time. I think I looked at it as exciting and magical, mysterious. And then it was gone because I was so involved in the moment I didn't even think about trying to remember what I was doing that might have led me there. <laughs> then it was gone. And then I just kind of was curious about when that would happen again. You know, when that might... and and kept myself open to the possibility of that happening again. And so how did you get into therapeutic drumming? Well, that was uh, a bit of an accident. I suppose. <laughs> One of those magical accidents again. Um, I had the experience of uh, accompanying my mom uh, through her Alzheimer's. And at the time... I was watching her forget things at the same time as the children I was teaching were learning them. So oh, she was forgetting wow. about sounding out words as they were learning to sound them out. It was this kind of uh, passing of the ships, I guess, in, yeah. the, in the process. When she was in, a, in a, an Alzheimer's unit, because uh, she needed 24-hour care and, and we couldn't provide that for her. Um, I would go in and uh, try and fiddle away on the piano, just do some songs that were familiar and uh, that kind of stuff. And I really, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I, I call myself a paper-trained pianist. I kind of have to have the paper in front of me and I have to have practiced and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm very aware of the fact that you can make mistakes and hit wrong notes on a piano. That's what I loved about drumming. You could never hit a wrong note. It was great. <laughs> but while I was there, what I ended up doing was singing the songs and just doing kind of percussive rhythms on the piano, just chording with the percussion that would go with the songs. And uh, it was songs that my dad used to sing to me when I was growing up, so they were very familiar. And I, I was singing them, and people would come along, and you could tell you know, they were kind of wandering. But you could tell people who used to be dancers, for example, they'd start almost dancing while they were walking. Wow. Kind of doing waltz movements. And, and people who are sitting in wheelchairs would be tapping on their knees and their toes would be going and that kind of stuff. And I, I realized that they were very involved in the music, even if they couldn't actually sing the songs anymore or, um, or remember the words, for example, although often they would remember them better than I would. 
for the ones who remembered. But they were all involved, they were all engaged in that music. So when I was able to uh, take a look at perhaps doing some kind of music, there was a program that was starting in London uh, that just ran for a year at that point, uh, where uh, we took some drums into um, a nursing home and tried to, to teach drumming. That was when, when you have this thing about the worst non-creative moment. <laughs> yes. trying, trying to teach people who can't remember from one minute to the next <laughs> no. or, and have no interest in learning something that is really challenging to them. That was crazy. <laughs> it didn't take me very long to just start singing songs at that point. And when I started singing, then they started drumming along with the with the music. Oh my god. And they were all doing and they and very engaged. The staff kept would come in and say, I I've never seen that person even move before wow. tapping their toe or humming. Um, I had one beautiful moment after I'd spent about, oh, maybe two months doing this and wondering whether it was really making any difference. A man who used to be a drummer in a, a marching band, according to his son, but had never actually woken up while I was doing the drumming. He just kind of sat there with his eyes closed and whatever. Anyway, uh, I started singing You Are My Sunshine with the group. And all of a sudden his head came up and he started singing. Oh my goodness. The staff had never heard his voice, ever. Wow. We sang You Are My Sunshine probably 15 times in a row because he kept singing and we didn't want him to stop. Oh my goodness. And then we finished and we went on to some other songs and his his toe was going and his eyes were open and he was alert and not looking around a whole lot. But then we sang You Are My Sunshine again at the end because there were a couple of, of, um, couple of the residents there who realized how special that moment was when he was singing. Mm -hmm. And he sang again. And then when I was packing up, he, his son brought him over to me. He was in a wheelchair. And he actually spoke. He said, my mom used to sing that to me. Oh my goodness, that just gives me goosebumps. I know, it was it was the most amazing thing. And from then on, I have never questioned the value. Wow. Um, that, that was such a gift to me. Yeah. To have him um, connect so clearly and sing and then speak. The staff had never heard him speak before. And he didn't speak again. And he's since passed quite a while ago, but... That moment will always stay with me. That was just Beautiful. so amazing. So what's the best advice that you've ever received? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the best advices I received was about raising children. And that actually came from a woman who had 10 children and uh, never wanted to be a wife and a mother. She wanted to be an architect, but in the days that she went to university, the closest she could get was doing home ec. 
she married a soldier who said he thought he had, had it made in the shade because he was marrying a home ec grad. <laughs> she didn't cook. <laughs> so, <laughs> he ended up doing it all. Anyway, she said that when I asked her how she managed, you know, raising these 10 kids, she said, all you do is you give children what they need. You give them shelter and food, safety, and you'll love them. And then you sit back and be delighted at how they grow themselves up. Oh, my goodness. And that, for me, was just astounding. It, it was permission for me growing my kids up, you know, that I didn't have to, they didn't have to reflect who I thought they should be. Yeah. They were going to grow themselves into their own people, and I could just sit back and be delighted. And that really, that has worked so well. I am really proud of my kids. But that also translates into the drumming facilitation. Basically, what I do is I give people the basics that they need to feel comfortable and safe while they're doing the drumming, especially if it's something brand new to them. And then we start to play and we just have fun with the rhythms and I just get to be delighted at how, how they play with this. I get to see them get caught. I get to see them get hooked the way I, I was hooked. Yes. <laughs> and that's a wonderful thing for me, yeah. Because it's almost like you did that with yourself at some point, you know, when you I went did. to Michigan. You, you, you kind of just gave yourself everything that you needed to, to grow and survive, but then, but then you gave yourself the space to just grow into who you needed to be. Yeah, I think the permission yeah. to, to let go of all the shoulds and the, uh, you know, this is what a teacher does or this is what a mother looks like or all of those things. Mm-hmm. I, I gave up the shoulds and I went with the what about, what if, <laughs> why not, you know, all of those. Yeah. Yeah. So can you share one of your personal habits that contributes to your creative success? Well, um, I would say one thing that I learned along the way was to do each thing I do 100% for the time I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And I am very busy. I'm doing lots of things, but I do each one 100% where I am. So that means I let everything else go and just dive into whatever it is I'm doing then. Yeah. I'm fully present. Um, it's It hasn't been hard to do that for me. Um, I, I think I have the kind of brain that can wander about if it's not engaged, but as soon as it's engaged, it's engaged fully. Is there a particular person uh, in your life, either alive or not, who inspires you to be creative? Uh, I have, uh, my sister is a songwriter, and she has always inspired me with her creativity. She dreams a lot of her songs. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, she has, she has a little pad beside the bed and a, an old-fashioned tape recorder, you know, with a button that you push. Yep. 
that's right. She wakes up in the middle of the night with a line or a, a, a melody or something. She'll just put on the tape recorder, sing it to herself, and then go back to sleep. And then in the morning, while she's getting herself ready or whatever, she plays it back to herself and decides whether she wants, whether or not she wants to work with it. Hmm. Uh, but so she just kind of allows the inspiration to strike whenever it does, and and then uh, works her way through it. I think probably I'm I'm more open to the wonderment of seeing what happens I don't know that I necessarily work my way through it as well as she does mm-hmm. but um, I, I really like the idea of just being aware having kind of a wide vision or a wide hearing and noticing how things are flowing and kind of where I might respond to that and, and then just see what happens um, I, I've been involved, the London Groove Collective is very mm-hmm. much like this, and we've been involved in doing a lot of um, what we call dreamings, which involves us just playing with different ambient sounds and sound that washes over people to allow them to relax into uh, a meditative state of some kind inspires it, it it inspires us as well to listen really carefully to each other and find out where we can respond to what we're hearing it's a lovely process yeah that uh, it's yeah. sort of like improvising but you have it to be really, really is. you have to be really aware of who you're playing with in order to play off of each other that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think probably more than anything, that's where I'm creative, is in community like that, mm-hmm. in relation to other other musicians, in relation to to other activities that are going on. And yeah. is that the is sort that, of uh, yeah. thing that you'll be facilitating at the Women's Drum Camp uh, in June? Well, that's one of the one of the workshops that I'll be doing. Will be a dreaming style workshop. Oh, yeah. that's so cool! So showing showing people how to do that, introducing them to some of the instrumentation and how to listen to each other and play off of each other. So, mm, uh, yes, I'm quite looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. And do you have a favorite work of art? It doesn't have to be music, but it, it can be any oh, other goodness. type of art. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that uh, the group of seven and any kind of uh, paintings that depict landscapes, the bones of landscapes, mm. I love. I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I looked at the questions and it said it could be a film, the first one that popped into my mind was Emily which is one of the most whimsical poems or, or, or film that I've ever seen that I really enjoyed. Hmm. Just, uh, I can't even tell you any more details about it than that. I just, whenever I get to see it, yeah. I, I look. Um, there was another, another film called uh, Baraka. 
Oh, which, yes, yeah. Which was an amazing compilation of, of sound and video and, yeah. And do you have a favorite quote that inspires you? Hmm. That was a hard one for me to do when I was looking at it. I think one that, that particularly resonated with me was uh, when I was I was talking to Flora McDonald, who was up here at the circle doing um, a talk to the women of Brescia. And I was speaking with her, and we were looking at all the young women who were around, the young women who were just coming out of university and who are so engaged in their communities and really wanted to make a difference. And I said, isn't it lovely to see um, all of these young women that we can pass the torch to? And she said, oh, no, my dear. Once you hit 60, there is nothing to hold you back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. That, that has got to be something for me to live up to. At that <laughs> point, she was 75 and had just started taking tours into Afghanistan when she was 72 and was wow. opening up schools for girls in Afghanistan in the middle of all of the war-torn uh, valleys and whatnot. So, wow, that yeah. certainly is an inspiration. So it was very inspirational to me. I, I still remember it, and and really, as my generation, and like I'm seventy now, so as my generation is rewriting what it looks like to be aging. Mm-hmm. Um, that that certainly is a quote that is staying with me. We have nothing to hold us back. Wow. So as we wrap up here, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, well, I suppose I would like to thank you certainly oh, thank for you. bringing up a lot of these, a lot of these um, interesting questions about creativity. It's the kind of thing that I haven't really labeled in myself before. And so it's been very interesting to understand how the experience of getting into something so deeply that you forget all about time, that you forget all about everything else that's going on. You just kind of get get grooving. There's nothing like that but feeling. That's where creativity is, yeah. 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 So... I, I very much appreciate you helping me focus on this. Thank you. It's my, been my pleasure, and thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, you're quite welcome. Good news. I will be hosting another writing challenge this June. So if you want to be the first to get notification of the next free challenge, go to bit.ly forward slash June writing challenge, or you can find a link for it in the show notes of this episode on ownyourcreativity.podbean.com. Thank you for joining us today. And I hope you will join me in the support of creativity by becoming a patron today at bit.ly forward slash creativity patron. When you become a patron, it means you know that you are not an island and that creativity is meant to be shared. Together, we can make a difference. And as part of the Own Your Creativity community, you are an integral part of the bigger picture. Until next time, own your creativity so that you think, feel and do better in your personal and professional life.